Hello, everyone, and welcome to the This Is Bitcoin podcast, where I, Bitcoin Gandalf, speak to Bitcoiners about privacy, technology, security, self-sovereignty, and building in Bitcoin. Today, I have the honor and pleasure of speaking with Bitcoin Q&A. Bitcoin Q&A is a Bitcoin privacy and FOSS advocate. He's also the creator of the amazing Bitcoin resources website, bitcoiner.guide, where you can find information on all sorts of cool Bitcoin stuff like wallets, nodes, privacy guides, and a lot more. In today's episode, we discussed Bitcoin Q&A's journey to Bitcoin, building bitcoiner.guide, how to give back and help FOSS Bitcoin projects, privacy, wallets, UTXO management, coin joins, and nodes. Following the recording of this podcast, I decided that I wanted to give back to him for all his work and simultaneously encourage more people to participate in the Podcasting 2.0 standard. I told Bitcoin Q&A that I was going to match all sats streamed to the podcast for the month of December up to 200,000 satoshis and donate those to his project, Bitcoiner.guide. Bitcoin Q&A, being the humble and generous person that he is, uh, asked me if I would consider instead donating the sats to hit to Ronan Dojo, uh, a project to which he has contributed and which is near and dear to his heart. So of course I agreed. So the This Is Bitcoin podcast is going to match every sat received from listeners up to 200,000 sats. So that means if I receive 200,000 sats, I'll match every one of those sats. So we'll have 400,000 sats in total. And those will be donated to the Running Dojo project. Now, in order to... To, to make this happen, what you have to do is download a podcasting 2.0 enabled uh, podcasting app, uh, such as a Fountain app, or I believe you can also use Breeze or Sphinx chat uh, and stream Satoshis to the podcast while you listen. Uh, I'll know that I'm receiving those podcasts from the from listeners of this particular episode. And then I will match every sat received via streaming of this episode in December up to 200,000, and I will donate those to Run and Dojo. Uh, I have, I'll figure out how I can share uh, how much of those sats have come in and uh, and then share the donations, because I haven't actually used Breeze or Sphinx Chat um, yet, so I'm not familiar with how to use those apps, but I, I do know how to use Fountain, and I'm all set up on that. But anyway, you guys just take care of listening and streaming, uh, and then I will post how many sats have been received uh, and my matching donation at the beginning of January. My thanks to Bitcoin Q&A for the time spent on this podcast, and thank you all for listening. See you on the next one. Bitcoin Q&A, welcome to the show. Hey Gandalf, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, uh, I've got a, a super strong black coffee in hand, uh, somewhat sleep deprived last night. Um, but uh, yeah, looking forward to, uh, to digging into to a decent conversation with you. Fantastic. No, I really appreciate you making the time. And um, to to someone like me, and I'm sure to many other people, uh, you're a sort of a, a legend in the in in the Bitcoin educational space. I remember um, when I first joined Bitcoin Twitter, you were definitely one of the people that I saw always answering questions. And then I saw your your um, your Bitcoiner guide. So just want to say thanks for everything you've done for Bitcoin and for educating people. It's really fantastic, and it's an honor to speak to you. Um, I want to kick things off just by um, asking you to to give us some background on how you got into Bitcoin and uh, particularly, uh, you know, what was the path that that led you to becoming focused 
or interested in the the sort of the privacy, self-sovereignty and tech aspects of Bitcoin, because I feel like usually people uh, come in and they're obsessed with number go up uh, and the economics of it. Um, but you seem to to really be focused on on this other side. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I will uh, caveat this with, y- yes, I never ever talk about number go up, um, probably just because everybody else does it for me and I don't see there isn't exactly a gap in the market for, for me to need feel a need to talk about that. But yeah, um, to, to, to rewind back to my rabbit hole story, it's fairly sort of uh, typical, I would say, uh, to somewhat similar to a lot of people that I speak to. So roundabout, um, I got in at the the big hype bubble um, into the, uh, and I should have a little bit to say this, but into the crypto space uh, at the back end of 2017. Um, started out um, watching some god-awful YouTube videos. Um, basically, I heard about it from somebody at work. Uh, started watching YouTube videos about Litecoin. Um, for some unknown reason, I got really, really into Litecoin, probably because of the people I was following on YouTube. So I... Um, continued to buy Charlie Lee's, uh, who is the founder of Litecoin, to, to buy his bags as he slowly offloaded them. So uh, <laughs> thanks for that, Charlie. Um, so continue, continue to do that uh, throughout the course of 2018. Dabbled in some other um, coins that will probably best to remain nameless. Let's just say they're not Bitcoin. Um, lost a, a, you know, a, 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 what, what is... Uh, an uncomfortable amount of money. Uh, so I very much sort of touched the stove uh, in 2018, got sucked in by all of the marketing speak, the buzzwords. Um, but then slowly, and then I'm not sure what the tipping point was. Um, I just started to, I, I, I'd imagine it probably was um, some of the podcasts that are still in the space now. So uh, obviously the guys at TFTC um, and Stefan Levera, I just kind of stumbled across their podcasts, which are obviously Bitcoin focused. Um, stumbled across uh, Andreas Antonopoulos on uh, YouTube, as most people do somewhere along their Bitcoin journey. So obviously, the, the, the sort of culmination of those three uh, resources, um, I just sort of kept finding myself going back to them and back to them. And, and as, uh, as time went on, um, I just sort of gravitated slowly um, towards, you know, the, the things that, that the people that were far more experienced in Bitcoin than me were, were kept repeating, you know, they, they were Bitcoin only, um, nothing else mattered. And at first I was like, yeah, you know, th- that just seems like somebody with a one trap mind that's not, not sort of open-minded. Um, eventually it stuck. Uh, and I obviously clearly now share the, the same sort of mantra. Um, unfortunately it took me until, uh, nearly midway through 2019 before I took the plunge and bought my first sats. Uh, I'm one of these people that likes to learn about something, um, as much as I can, you know, I learned my lesson with the, with the shit coins, unfortunately. So I was a bit more uh, apprehensive before diving into Bitcoin, uh, financially. Um, yeah, bought my first sats in 2019. And then ever since the, the, um, it's been a quest for, um, sort of, uh, to, to learn more and more about the, the, uh, the protocol, uh, how it works. That's the kind of bit that sort of, uh, that makes me tick in terms of, uh, from a Bitcoin perspective. Um, yeah, number go up's great, um, but I just, um, understanding the nuts and bolts of how a wallet works, how a node works, uh, what is the best security approach, that sort of stuff uh, it was the sort of uh, circles that I found myself um, spending more and more time in. Um, 
particularly uh, on Telegram. There's many, many great communities uh, in Telegram, um, which again, to, to cap off the final part of your question around privacy, was I just found myself spending a lot of time in the Samurai Wallet um, Telegram room uh, and the surrounding rooms that kind of spin off from that. Uh, obviously, being a uh, privacy-focused wallet, a Samurai Wallet is, it attracts privacy-focused people. And then I just started to soak up all of the information that all of these people who are far cleverer than I am were, were being kind enough to pass on on a day-to-day basis, even if it wasn't directly to me. You know, they were giving advice to somebody else in the room. I was, um, this was back when I was at my, in my nine to five fiat job, um, probably doing a little less work than I should have done, scrolling through Twitter and Instagram, um, just, just sort of trying to soak up as much information as possible. Um, so that's kind of how I got into the space. And then, uh, I'm sure we could probably get into later about where that took me, uh, from then on in terms of starting to want to give back to the community and create, um, you know, uh, various different websites and guides and, and try and contribute as a absolutely non-technical user coming into this space. My, my personal background is couldn't be any further from it, uh, or computers, um, and neither could my career either. So um, I very much uh, live in proof that, you know, uh, if a high school dropout uh, idiot like me can, can can sort of get a loose understanding of the of the nuts and bolts of this space, then I firmly believe that anybody that's willing to spend a bit of time can do the same. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I mean, the part I found really uh, incredible about that story is that you went from Presumably the Litecoin, like when you got interested in, in shitcoins, it was for number go up technology, not from not for oh, actual yeah. Yeah. tech, right? It wasn't like, oh, Litecoin's so well designed or something. Um, but that, the fact that you jumped from, from that to getting interested in and to, to somebody who's perhaps not techie and not doesn't understand the tech side of Bitcoin and the privacy and stuff, if I they would look to you as like an authority who knows a lot about it and my impression was like you must have a tech background um but as you just said shared you absolutely don't um is there something about your personality about your your like your past that that like have you been interested in tech generally outside of like being techie or your career uh i guess i i had a a very sort of light interest in sort of again using air quotes here with tech I was uh, always a bit of an Apple fanboy I used to have like the latest uh, MacBook Uh, always used to keep up to date with the the latest iPhone Um, used to have things like a a ring doorbell or smart light bulbs because at at the time when they first came out I thought they were cool and you know they they, um, were kind of cutting edge at the time so I I, I sort of dabbled in that sort of stuff but but they, um, that kind of tech isn't, you know, it's mainstream, isn't it? It's not, you don't need to be technical to use it. So that's kind of as far as it went really. And, um, you know, circle back sort of three, four, more than four years ago, um, I had never even heard of Linux. I didn't know, you know, I thought a Raspberry Pi was something that you had after your <laughs> Sunday roast. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm people, some people genuinely don't believe me when I say this because, um, but they come to me with questions that could go completely over my head because they get this impression that, you know, because I focus more on the 
the, the technical side of Bitcoin that I'm some like uh, shadowy super coder that sits in a in an office all day with 19 screens and it looking like the Matrix. But uh, yeah, it couldn't be further from the truth, really. Yeah, amazing. I, I'm I, I'm astounded by that because that was definitely my impression. I would have thought that at least you had some background from your like fiat life that was techie um, just because of number one, how interested you are in the tech and number two, how uh, well you appear to, to understand it. Um, at least like, like you say, like if somebody with, with a, a tech, a Bitcoin coding tech background might ask you questions that, that like go over your head, but to, to the untrained eye, uh, you know, would, you would not be able to tell that at all. Um, and yeah, so that you mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, building, like Bitcoin or guidance stuff, that was going to be my next question. Like, uh, not being techie at all. Uh, first of all, I, I'd love to get into because I'm trying to build uh, a, a Bitcoin resources website. Um, not quite like Bitcoin a guide. I don't think I have the um, the skills to 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 cover that info. And you already do it so well. Um, but like, I find it just incredibly hard to pick like how to build the website. I get overwhelmed by all these different options. So. It'd be awesome uh, for those people that are looking to build their own, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that want to give back to the space. And I think creating a website where you curate some content or you share some of your own thoughts or what you know about Bitcoin uh, is much needed. I don't think we can have too much of that um, because there's still so so many people that know nothing about it. And each one of us has a social group um, that we can share stuff with. Um, so like, how did you go about creating Bitcoin a guide and what even drove you to doing it? Because presumably this like a, a piece of work like that takes a lot of your time. So um, Bitcoin dot guide is actually the sort of uh, second iteration of like uh, a website that I've put out regarding with Bitcoin. So um, my, my pseudonym um, is Bitcoin Q and a, the, the original website that I created was Bitcoin Q and a.com. So that was essentially designed to be, as, as I was going through the, the, the learning process that I'm sure loads of people listening to this are, are, um, are doing uh, right now, um, I was thinking, well, there's loads of, at the time there was quite a lot of, uh, nowhere near as much as there is now, but there's, there was a fair few um, Bitcoin resources that um, were, were, were great. They were really thorough, um, but there was nothing that had just some simple to the point, you know, uh, like a list of of questions. The idea behind my website was was a list of simple questions and answers, hence Bitcoin Q and A, um, of the most common stuff. So you know, if I want to learn about wallets, I don't want to read like a ten minute article on the intricacies of uh, why Betch thirty two is important or something like that, because it's just going to switch newcomers off. Um, so I, was, I set out to just create. Okay, if you want to learn about wallets, here's here's a simple question and answers list about wallets. You know, the most common ones. Um, so I did it. Uh, I had different different topics, wallets, nodes, uh, common mistakes, common questions, things like that. I built that website on uh, a service called Wix, which is probably, you know, you, I'm sure you've probably heard of the service Wix, um, which is what it is essentially just a, a drag and drop um, website builder for absolute non-technical people like me. Um, it made it fairly simple. You know, you just go on. It, it's all built around a framework where you can just drag and drop your pictures in, put your titles in, and then type in your content. And it makes it look really pretty without the need to have any um, massive amounts of technical knowledge. 
So I built it there. Uh, it stayed up. Uh, it looks nothing like my current website does now. Um, it stayed up for probably over a year, I would say. Um, then uh, as I sort of um, got a little bit more technically advanced, I suppose, um, and wanted to uh, have a bit more sort of uh, customization opportunity with the website uh, and to be able to um i actually wanted to move it off wix um turns out that you can't you know if you build a website with wix you're stuck with wix so you're stuck with their um their hosting fees you're stuck with their annual fee to keep the website live um you know it's not massive amounts of money but if you ever wanted to like literally just up and leave and take all your content with you and say deploy it on a WordPress website or deploy it manually um, like I have, which I'll come on to in a sec. You can't do that. You're kind of locked in. It's very much a walled garden. It's a bit like Apple. So they draw you in. Uh, they made this website really, really easy to make and to construct and it looks really pretty. And then, But once you're in, you're stuck. So then I had the, the difficult decision of I wanted to move um, my content um, away from um, you know, essentially if Wix wanted to take me offline, um, they could do so at the click of a button. And that, that made me worry a little bit. Um, you know, my concept's not exactly, um, you know, controversial, but, uh, I just wanted to have that next level of, of sovereignty, I suppose. So, um, I essentially had to recreate the website all over again, um, elsewhere so I, I spun up um, a virtual private server which is essentially it's still somebody else's computer um, but you can sort of uh, you can purchase it anonymously you can um, pay for it in Bitcoin depending on the service that you use and you've just got a lot more control over um, the content that you put there you can build it you know once you've got that sort of computer in the cloud you can build that website using any number of different um, website tool builders. So I essentially had to recreate the website from scratch using a brand new tool, um, which took me a hell of a long time. Um, but the, uh, I guess that's a long roundabout way of saying that I just kind of wanted to increase my sovereignty and uh, get outside of that wall garden so that now I'm in a position where obviously the website's grown significantly in terms of the depth of content. So from the simple questions and answers, we've, uh, you know, I've then added guides on privacy, multi-sig nodes, wallets, um, uh, Bitcoin backups, uh, guides on no KYC and various other things. So that's all hosted now at Bitcoiner.guide. Um so is that the, does that somewhat answer your question or um... yeah no that that's great and uh, I complete I can completely relate to like the the not wanting to use or understanding like why uh, something like Wix or Squarespace looks attractive at first but like you said you know they make it really easy for you to build a website uh, and then that's how they sort of get you to to stick around is because like you can't just download your code and take it somewhere else and deploy it somewhere else you have to stick with them you have to pay them. The, 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 well, that you can only host your website with Squarespace or Wix or any of these other services. And I often find like, even though the um, drag and drop builders are quite easy, depending on the level of customization, and like this is something that you shared, you, when you wanted to customize the website more, you, you've, you felt like you had to go elsewhere. Depending on the level of customization, it's actually uh, almost as difficult to use that or it's not possible to customize to the level using a Squarespace as it is something that's like open source or learning a little bit of HTML, CSS or Markdown or whatever it is that 
that you go on to use. Um, so yeah. So, and I understand I, we've spoken before about this. So your <clears throat> Bitcoiner guide now is, is, is it a GitHub page? with yeah so yep. it was it was initially um so again uh, i'm going to keep harping on about it but as as a non-programmer and a non-technical user i i went onto github um and started hearing um you know people were telling me about a little sort of quote-unquote simple to use um website builder that you can use with github pages and the tool is called jekyll um which is um uh, like a bunch of code that kind of you can just throw your content at it in a simple, like you just alluded to, a markdown format, which is essentially it's it's very similar to just like a basic text editor. There are some very very uh, simple sort of codes in terms of like how you can implement a, a hyperlink and things like that. But for all intents and purposes, it's just a text editor. You can throw your text and your images at that click a button and it'll kind of build a website for you using the theme that you, you sort of choose. So um, I went on to GitHub, having heard about this, uh, found um, a theme uh, that I liked the look of. Um, I forked that repository, which basically means um, I sort of created a copy of it. It was, you know, it's completely open source. I wasn't like breaking any uh, copyright or infringement laws. Um, so I just forked it, made my own copy of it. And then from there, I... Um, smashed my head against the keyboard for a couple of weeks to try and figure out how I could, say, change the color of the hyperlink. So instead of when I put my mouse over them um, and it'd be blue, I want it to be orange. Um, instead of the header saying, um, you know, the name of the theme, I want it to say bitcoiner.guide. That, that was um, a massive learning experience for me in terms of how basic websites um work underneath the hood in terms of, you know, it's actually nowhere near as difficult as you think. And there's not, um, you can customize a website quite a lot by changing very few things in, in the theme and in the background. And so, yeah, I, I just basically essentially just took a copy of somebody else's theme and just slowly over time, just changed the theme so that it looks basically what you see today at Bitcoiner.guide. So it's got, it's got the, the Bitcoin orange hyperlinks, um, you know, it's, it's it's a fairly simple website, but I think that's part of its charm is that it's kind of a, a no-frills sort of um, place where you can just go, uh, you know, if you've got a spare 10 minutes and you'd pick a Bitcoin topic and you want to learn about that and you can, you know, there's no, um, it's not sort of a, a um, really fancy website. It's very basic, very basic in the background as well, um, but it's got all the information that you need, hopefully. Uh, you know, I'm going to continue to build upon it. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, so that was a, a big learning experience for me, um, in terms of like, you know, the, the absolute very basics of web development. But, um, again, I'll say it again, if, if a numpty like me can do it, then I'm a firm believer that anybody can. Yeah. I mean, I think, so a lot of us that like are, are in this, um, in this space and, and, and interested in this particular area of Bitcoin, I think we are also tinkerers. Uh, so whilst like anyone can learn things i do think it also like you like you've just alluded to it wasn't just like you know one day you spent a couple of hours one afternoon and you like uh and you made this amazing website like you have to put you you do have to like put in a considerable amount of time and deal with some at least at the beginning like a steep learning curve but i think the main thing for people to realize is that it is possible and yes it takes some effort but it's no way near as hard as uh, as some people might think it is. Um, 
I think you're a brilliant example and I encourage anyone to go and check out bitcoiner.guide because the website, the fact that it's, I actually love the, fa- the fact that it's simple. If you start getting all fancy, you know, with lots of images and like animations and stuff, it just makes it a lot harder to upkeep the website. And that does make the learning curve perhaps so steep that somebody who's not that technical or isn't like doing this full time, you know, where they might drop off because because it's just too hard. So keeping it simple uh, is is good for the user going on the website, makes it easy to navigate, easy to find information and makes it easy for you as the builder to to build it in the first place and then to upkeep it uh, without having to like spend your entire life figuring out all this complicated stuff, um, right? Yeah, the, the, the interesting thing as well is that, you know, um, and it's kind of uh, ties into the sort of free and open source ethos and ideology of Bitcoin as well is that, you know, I got started by uh, creating a, a fork of somebody else's uh, website repository, used their theme, changed it. You know, if, if I, I'll send you the link after this to the one I, you know, it's, it's, um, it's almost unrecognizable to the actual theme itself, but it gave me a great starting block. Well, there's actually, you know, a, a couple of websites that a couple of, um, uh, Bitcoiners that I speak to now are, are in the process of building that have actually done the same, but with my website. So it's, you know, it's kind of gone full circle where I, I sort of created a, a copy of somebody else's and then made it, made it, you know, um, look at how you see it today. And then, you know, there's other people now that are kind of, I guess, standing on my shoulders to, to use my sort of template so that they can change it to suit them and so that they can put out their own content and, and, um, and hopefully that sort of trend continues. Like you say, you know, you're looking to do one as well. And I think, you know, there's never ever going to be too many uh, resources about Bitcoin because for 95% of the population, even the most simple concept of, um, you know, how a Bitcoin transaction works is, is when you're first coming into space is absolutely mind boggling. So the more content that we've got out there, the better for me. Agreed. Agreed. And yeah, I think that's amazing that people are, are sort of forking a fork of a fork. Uh, and that building off, you know, standing on your shoulders. And that's definitely something I'm going to do. You very kindly brought to my attention that I, that, you know, what you did and that I can do the same with Bitcoin a guide. And I really like the, the, at least like the general look of it. Obviously we don't want to have something that's exactly the same, um, but it's a great starting framework. I'm looking forward to, um, to doing that. I've, I've got some experience already using Markdown um, from another website builder that I used before. So hopefully the learning curve won't be too steep, but I'm, I'm not, I don't know. Do you have to use command line? Uh, no, not at all. No? Um, if, especially, especially if you were, um, there's, so there's two ways you can do it. The way I started out is that you can do this on GitHub pages. Um, so you'll have your repository. It'll have all of the, the basic files in it, um, including the, the website builder, which you don't necessarily need to touch. All you need to do is, you know, you create a new page to say wallets or, uh, you know, uh, podcasts or whatever, create your markdown file. Once you save that on GitHub, it automatically in the background um, creates all the files and then it will serve it at the the URL that it will give you a default URL and obviously you're free to change that if you want as well. You visit the website and your website's there, it's published. That's awesome. That's the easy way and, that, and that's how I started to do it. And then I, as I went a little bit more tinfoil hat, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm using GitHub, which is great. It's out in the open. It's, you know, I, I've got my own local copy of it as well, but GitHub could still take me offline if they wanted to. So I kind of took all those files offline and now I do the exact same process, but I just build it locally on my laptop and then I just send the files uh, up once I've sort of, 
once I've used the the sort of run command, so there is one single command the way I do it, it basically just says Jekyll build, uh, which basically says I've made the changes to my content. Go and build the website for me. It'll spit out a load of uh, a load of files, and all I do is just send them to my virtual private server. Uh, which is a drag and drop exercise, and that's it. My website's updated, but if you're doing the GitHub way, it's it's even easier. Like I say, it's it's just change the content, press save, job done. Yeah, awesome. I think I have my own. Well, I don't host like locally on a machine. I I you know I pay for a hosting service, but I guess they could also take me offline. So the like the ultimate self sovereign way would be you have a, a sort of computer running twenty four seven at home. That that is the your your host for the website, right? Yes, that's the absolute best way. The problem is then you run into privacy issues um, in terms of, you know, if I was to host um, the the actual Bitcoiner.guide at my house and I wasn't to um, do some fancy networking stuff, then people would be able to see my IP address and, and from that see my rough location of where I live, which is obviously not desirable for a, a, a privacy advocate. Um, so, which is why currently I'm still... Uh, hosting it on a virtual private server so that I don't need to worry about um, my IP address being exposed. I do, however, host a uh, Tor website, uh, which is a carbon copy of Bitcoiner.guide. Obviously, it's just a .onion URL. That is actually hosted on a Raspberry Pi that is sat next to me right now. So, um, I, obviously, not many people are going to visit um it via tour, you know, depending on your country or your jurisdiction, maybe you might want to not uh, reveal to your internet service provider that you're visiting Bitcoin websites. But um, I just did that as a sort of exercise to, um, to well, prove to myself that I could do it. But um, just also, I guess I can kind of claim that I am self-hosting my website from home, albeit just the tour version. Yeah, awesome. I mean, that is an like an astounding amount of stuff even though you're 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 playing it down a little bit saying you're not that techie and whatever that is an astound if you count like not only the bitcoin stuff but also the fact that you've learned this how to build this website and st- that is an astounding amount of stuff to have learned in say two and a bit years since you got into bitcoin presumably all this like all this website stuff is was after you you got into bitcoin right yeah yeah never touched anything like that beforehand um so um, maybe I am playing it down. You know, don't get me wrong. The, the website is the product of hundreds and hundreds of hours in my spare time in and around weekends and after work when I was back at my nine to five job. Um, so yeah, I've dedicated a shit ton of time to get to where I am today to, to mm-hmm. learn. Um, but again, I, I stood on the shoulders of other people, you know, that I wouldn't have even known that Jekyll website builder existed if one of another Bitcoin hadn't told me about it. Uh, I wouldn't have even known that it was possible to host the tour version of my website on a Raspberry Pi at home if somebody else hadn't written a guide on it. So I'm just, you know, um, a, a very small pawn on a very big chessboard, if you like, that, you know, I, I've uh, been a sponge in terms of loads, of, you know, I've soaked up loads of information from other people that have been really, really kind to me to help me learn about Bitcoin websites, privacy, et cetera, et cetera. So, I'm just kind of uh, trying to help pay that forward again by helping other people do the same, I guess. Yeah, I think, I mean, that the that kind of stuff like shines, I think it shines a, uh, shines a light on your, <clears throat> excuse me, on your personality qualities. Like number one, you're able to appreciate what others have done for you and what you've gained from others' work. Uh, and, and then 
like you're appreci- you're showing your appreciation by paying that forward. And I think that's awesome. And I think even though, again, there's a little bit of play down, I think where I'm approaching all of this from is like, we want people to be to be using Bitcoin more privately because it has certain benefits and we want people to like self-custody and we want them to run their own nodes for all this variety of reasons that we'll get into. Um, but I also... I'm concerned that if we think that we're sort of, I won't put myself in this camp, but if we think like the kind of people who are doing this now are normal and and that most people are going to do all this work, I don't think that is the case because they would otherwise already be doing it. Not to say that some people who aren't uh, can't get into it and start just like you or, or me or many other people. But I think if we want like mass, mass adoption of Bitcoin and for it to be used in a way um, that is private and self-sovereign, all these things need to, be, oh, a lot of the, the the stuff needs to be abstracted away so the user isn't doing, you know, isn't spending two, three hundred, two or three hundred hours uh, uh, on figuring out how to do it. It's it's more of like a click of a button. And so I think that's something because in a lot of, in a lot of podcasts I've heard about, I've listened to about self-sovereign, using Bitcoin um, in a self-sovereign way or privacy, uh, I think we hammer away at all the benefits but there isn't a lot of focus on the costs of it and like i've recently tried to switch from windows to linux and just the amount of hours i had to spend reading about different distros and like all these issues and then i just don't think that a lot of other people are going to to spend that time i mean i just saw a video um on twitter shared by uh, microchad where it seems like people in Sweden are now putting like NFC chips into their skin to have their Vax passports on them. And that's ultimately like a convenience thing, right? They want to go out, they want, be, they want to be able to go to restaurants or bars. And if you need to show a Vax passport, I mean, they're willing to like go from something that's as easy as scanning a QR code. Now, I'm not saying I, I agree with this, but I'm saying it's very easy to scan a QR code Vax pass on your phone or whatever. But convenience like is so highly valued that people are like, willing to skip though they'd they'd rather skip the step of like unlocking their phone and showing the qr code uh and put to put a chip in their skin it seems crazy to me but that's the sort of world it seems that we live in right yeah uh, well the whole the whole uh vax pass thing uh, i'm sure we share the same thoughts but the the thought of um not only caving into that sort of uh social pressure but also to embed something into your skin to just to be able to go to a restaurant is absolutely just mind-boggling to me. I actually saw that tweet as well before we came on. Um, I, I, I like to take stuff like that with a pinch of salt. Uh, you know, this is the internet and it is Twitter. So yeah. um, I, I'm just kind of uh, maybe uh, somewhat uh, ignorant or just hopeful that stuff like that doesn't actually come to light. But uh, yeah, to, to bring it back to the the whole convenience piece, yeah, you're absolutely right. That you know, there's a reason that um, um, Apple is one of the most valuable uh, co- uh, companies on the planet. You know, they make beautiful products that are easy to use. Um, so uh, it, it's not really um, a surprise that they you know make so much money each year and that they've got so much reach um, uh, across the globe. So. To tie that into Bitcoin, I think um, it's just another reminder of, and I hate using this term because it makes me cringe a little bit, but it it is true. You know, we are really, really early. Um, 
the, the space is moving at breakneck pace uh, in terms of the infrastructure that's being built around Bitcoin. Even the the difference in the availability and the functionality of the different wallets from today to even when I got in, you know, only a couple of years ago, I'm not exactly an OG or anything like that. It's it's night and day. You know, we've we've gone from basically you you used um, Electrum and that was it to having wonderful tools like Sparrow uh, and Spectre that provide all this functionality. And, you know, you can create a multi-sig wallet um, in in like five, uh, 10 or 15 minutes um, all through a beautiful graphical user interface. We, that didn't exist just a couple of years ago. So, um, you know, another example is Nodes. Um, uh, the Umbrella project um, hasn't been around all that long, but there's a reason that their following and their user base has absolutely exploded. Um, that's because they've, you know, arguably made the easiest experience um, to, to onboard. You know, I don't think there's many more um, um, steps to, to setting up your own DIY node that, that that can be removed from the process that that due to the, you know, compared to the, the approach that they've taken. Um, so I think we we are getting there. We've just got to uh, continue to ride that wave. You know, the user experience is, is, is coming on a long way. Um, and with that, obviously, we'll bring more and more people because the barrier to entry is just getting lower and lower and lower. Um, we've just got to uh, wait for wait for that to, to kind of um, get to that tipping point, really. I think there will be a shelling point. Um where the like you like you alluded to that the the user experience has been um, abstracted away or, or polished enough so that um, you know uh, any Tom Dick and Harry on the street can uh, easily pick this stuff up and and operate with at least some uh, base level of, of sort of uh, sovereignty and hopefully uh, doing so by holding their own keys at, at an absolute minimum. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Um, I think. One of the main things, I guess, to to get people to realize what they might be giving up uh, when they go, because I feel like the trade-off is often like, you know, privacy and self-sovereignty versus convenience. Um, so the day that we can, the the day that we can make using Bitcoin privately, or and just general privacy, like on the internet, um, more convenient than than not being private. That's when we win. I'm not sure that just the incentives of of being self-sovereign and private when the convenience factor isn't tied along with it is enough, or that's what it seems like at the moment. So I, I, I struggle personally to see how that happens, but obviously there's much smarter people than me working on making uh, you know, privacy-focused stuff and self-sovereign-focused tech and, and ways to, to interact with Bitcoin that are hopefully going to be more convenient um than the 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 opposite than the non-private non-sovereign ways i don't know if you have any insights or any thoughts on that yeah we're again we're we're we the, the tools like you said are, are being built you know um two years ago um uh, uh co coordinating a, a coin join um on your mobile phone was was a you know a really wacky concept that's a reality today with samurai wallet you know if you, you can send some bitcoin into to your android phone wallet and and in a couple of taps um have done your first coin join you know you don't need your 
own node, uh, it's advisable, but you don't, it's not a requirement. Um, so, you know, within the space of like 15 minutes, you could have, you could, um, have some private Bitcoin uh, that's been through a first coin join. And all you need is an Android phone that you can buy for, for you know, for like $50, $50. You know, you don't need a fancy phone to be able to do that. So, um, and, and couple that with some of the spending tools that they've got within the wallet as well. Um, you know, the default spend is a privacy preserving spend and it's called Stonewall. Um, the technicalities of which are probably kind of outside of the, the, the sort of uh, needs of this podcast, but the default spend with a Samurai um, is a privacy preserving spend. So we are edging closer towards that being the default. So if you use a wallet with the right tools in it, like a Samurai wallet, the the defaults are set up that the guide rails are really high to, so that if you wanted to uh, be somewhat private, then you can do so by default with without taking um, very many extra steps. So I think that trend's going to continue uh, as well. Um, but like I say, we are early. We've just got to... Um, wait for those tools to be uh, to be built out. And I think that's why you see people, uh, you know, I tried to do it myself, but you see people, prominent Bitcoiners in the space, uh, like Matt O'Dell, that are really pushing for people to contribute towards free and open source software. Um, and whether that's financially or if you're technic- technically based, you can, you know, contribute uh, through documentation or by um, even contributing to the code, you know, if you're, you're way deep down the rabbit hole. Um, it's within our gift to, um, as as sort of Bitcoiners who are more entrenched in this space, to help push uh, these sorts of tools forward. And um, I would urge, you know, anybody listening to this that sounds like that could be could be them. Just you know, reach out to your favorite project and and see uh, if there's anything you can help with. This most of these projects um, don't have uh, a readily available income stream. Uh, they're crying out for translations. They are. Um, looking for people to help in their community groups. Um, they're looking for feedback on their user experience. There's a multitude of ways that even the least technical user can contribute back to free and open source software. Which you know, if we if we had um, more people doing, if we had more people doing so, um, you know, th- we would get to that utopia much quicker than than the current trajectory. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And if we want to continue to have open open source software. Uh, potentially free open source software we all have to do our bit because we can't really expect like you know a handful of people to do everything and us get like the best software all for free um you have to take personal you know if you want to act in a self-sovereign way you also have to take personal responsibility for uh helping to make that happen whereas like you know something that's closed source or for profit or whatever they have different incentives that lead them to be able to build stuff um the the I guess the open source ethos is a lot of it is like community, um, uh, like, yeah, community giving back to the project or contributing to the project, right? Definitely, which um, unfortunately it's, it's you know, if history repeats itself, it's not that sustainable a model. You know, there's been many a, a free and open source piece of software that's slowly just withered in, into um into the shadows unfortunately through lack of funding or lack of uh, people focusing on it so that's why it's again i think it's just really important that people show their support in any way that they can to to, to build this thing forward because um you know if you're just a, a humble uh, hodler that uses you know a, a wallet and a hardware wallet and you're quite happy to to you know sit there and hopefully watch your your um 
your Bitcoin stash grow in value, then, you know, by, by contributing to uh, open source software and the tools that you use and that are dear, dear to your heart um, are going to uh, pay back in dividends in the long run because, you know, the more people adopt this stuff, you know, there's, as we all know, there's only a fixed amount of Bitcoin to go around. So uh, the more people that we can uh, bring into this space to, to get the benefit from this uh, paradigm shift, uh, the better. And I think we all have our own... Um, responsibility to to do what we can to to contribute yeah it would it, it'd be it'd be awesome well I, I think bitcoin opens a door for uh for a way to fund free open well free uh it still needs funding um but for a way for the community to fund or the users to fund um free software where you know you, i'm sure you've heard of podcasting 2.0 like the value for value model where you're streaming sats to a to a to your podcaster or your a podcast that you're listening to, um, a similar thing could be done with open source software, where the user can choose to stream Sats uh, to the to the builders or the makers of the project. I think what stopped um, those sort of sorts of things from working uh, with it, within uh, the fiat system or with the fiat rails is that like you can't send tiny amount, like very small amounts. Uh, it's not practical. You have to put in credit card information. It just, people don't do it like doing a donation style model. Whereas I think a streaming sats, um, version of this is just perhaps frictionless enough that more people might be willing to do it and, and thereby getting some funding, um, for, for people who are building free open source stuff, um, so that would be interesting if that if that develops because the the podcasting two point thing seems to be um, gaining some good traction, which is amazing to see. Yeah, it's a it's a really great model. Um, I, I I kind of uh, I'm just of the opinion that we're we're kind of in a a weird phase of of kind of Bitcoin history at the moment where. Um, it's really, really difficult to get people to part with their sats and probably for good reason. Um, you know, pe most people in the space have a, some, you know, even small expectation that their, their, uh, their sats are going to increase in value. So that naturally, um, makes them not want to part ways with them. So we're kind of in a catch 22 where people know that they should be contributing, but they're like, well, you know, what's the, what's the opportunity cost of me, you know, donating to that project. And then, you know, Bitcoin does a 10 X over the next couple of years. It's um, kind of a catch 22. I'm not sure what the easy answer is. Maybe it's UX, like you say. And, you know, if uh, speaking personally, if, if there's an easy way uh, for me to, to contribute financially, like you say, through streaming sats and it's, really um frictionless um i'm more likely to do it than if i've got to jump over a load of hur hurdles to you know uh download this 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 uh new piece of software and then i've got to jump into the command line or something like that it's um if we can well, i say we look i'm talking like i'm a developer i'm like again i'm not a developer but if if the people in the space can make that um those tools easy to use and um I suppose fun as well, you know, if you can make it fun, like, you know, example is the, you know, the boost button uh, on podcasting 2.0. And um, if you can have nice little touches like that, again, it's just more likely to, uh, to enable people to, to part ways with their, with their precious hard in sats. Yeah, agreed. I mean, the one thing I have, so one of the arguments I have for people who say like, oh, I don't want to spend my sats is like, so what I was doing, I, 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 I formerly lived in a place that had no capital gains tax. I understand in the UK, it's a little bit different because if you part with SATs, you might be liable to pay capital gains tax. Um, but where I lived, there was no capital gains tax. So 
what I was doing is, uh, for example, if I'd go out to dinner with friends and somebody picked up the bill and we were all then paying them back, I would offer to to pay them in Bitcoin. Uh, and so what I would do is like, I'm spending this, you know, whatever it is, 20 quid already on dinner. Why not just buy Bitcoin with it and pay in Bitcoin? Like I'm still, I'm still spending 20 pounds at the end of the day, how it leaves my pocket, whether it's as pounds or as Bitcoin makes no difference to me because that's not, that's not money that I was going to buy Bitcoin to huddle with anyway. Uh, and I think if people can get a, like, around the idea that you're, you, you know, you're going to live life. You're going to have to spend some money. Why not? It's better for you to pay it in Bitcoin than it is for you to pay it in fiat. That person might keep that Bitcoin or pay someone else in Bitcoin. And you're just sort of adding value to, to the network and making more people use Bitcoin rather than thinking, you know, oh no, I have to like keep, I really think we have to use Bitcoin at the end of the day. Um, I think it can be like a store of value, digital gold, and it can be a medium of exchange. Completely agree. Uh, to your point on um, paying people back for the bills uh, in Sats, uh, fantastic idea and a really great way to orange people as well. Uh, orange pill people, should I say? A uh, really great way. So yeah, urge anybody listening to this to, to take that approach. Um, the the uh, and on your point about uh, spending Bitcoin, I completely agree as well. Um, it really annoys me when people, you know, I understand the 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 want to to hodl, and you know, for the vast majority of my stash, I do the same. You know, it's it's obvious uh, where this thing's going in the future, so it makes perfect sense. But I think um, we we all should be open to the idea of. Um, parting ways with a small amount of our sats if it's to to the right merchant to the right vendor i'll give you an example um if there's a, a vendor where I, I, all right I'll, I'll use the shameless plug here that foundation devices who i work for full disclosure um if you know that there's a merchant like that that accepts bitcoin um that has been very open and honest about the fact that they're going that they don't sell their bitcoin um for for you know they, they they pledged to hold it for a number of years, um, then you can sort of contribute to that circular economy. Um, you can uh, that could be your way of contributing. So rather than uh, paying with your credit card, you can um, you know contribute. Well, I say contribute your sats. You know you're going to get a product for it at the end of the day as well. But by paying them in Bitcoin as well, you're sort of contributing towards that circular economy. So there's loads of different merchants out there that have that have pledged to do the same as well. So that's one thing that I always try to do that if I'm buying some Bitcoin related uh, merch or, or products and I see that the um, that the merchant takes Bitcoin, uh, I'll always pay in Bitcoin. Um, don't get me wrong, th there's been some purchases that, that I've made that are uh, significantly uh, more expensive now than, than, you know, I would have been financially better off for holding the SAT, but um, I can be safe in the knowledge that those merchants that I've uh made those purchases at and are sort of true uh, Bitcoin companies. And I've done my little part of contributing to the, to the circular economy because um, I think long-term for Bitcoin to be uh, deemed a real true success, uh, the circular economy has going to have to start to grow. Um, and I think, again, we, we can all play our part in that by even, if, even if it's just one, pur one purchase a year to buy uh, a node case from crypto cloaks uh, or, or a hardware wallet from foundation devices, um, you know, you can easily replace those sats, uh, but you've equally contributed to the, to the circular economy at the same time. Absolutely. And I, like, yeah, I think the, 
the the you know the thinking about like oh this purchase has now cost me x amount in fiat because you know bitcoin's gone up in value um i think the only way you can avoid that is to not have spent any of the money even if it was just fiat you you know you could have ever for every fiat uh, purchase you ever make you could always say if i had bought bitcoin instead i would have had this much money now so the purchase still cost me uh you know opportunity cost in bitcoin even if you didn't actually spend bitcoin to acquire that product um so at the end of the day like we've said we have to buy stuff because we have to live and and you know life's not all about just like saving money for to do nothing with it unless you're gonna you know you really just want to pass it on to your to your you know your daughter's sons or your family or something uh later on i think we have to live a little and i'd rather wherever possible spend bitcoin rather than than spend fiat um I want to, uh, so I still want to cover, um, you know, nodes, wallets, custodying Bitcoin, privacy. Uh, but I think perhaps the best way to go through everything is I'm, whilst I'm not brand new to Bitcoin, I'm brand new to using Bitcoin privately, excuse me, running a node, uh, you know, the self custody, I have self custodied for a while, but like getting into sort of different types of self custody. So maybe what we can do to run through everything without taking up too much of your time is uh let's like run this like uh you know a scenario where you're i'm basically telling you what's going on with me and what i want to achieve and maybe you can give me some advice and then anyone who's in a similar position to me will be able to take this information um and use it for themselves so uh one of the things i want to get into is like using bitcoin in a more private way so all the Bitcoin that I've ever acquired uh, pretty much is KYC Bitcoin. So I've gone to to an exchange. I've given them my details. Uh, you know, they have a, probably a picture of my passport, like my address, uh, and they know where I'm a resident of. They know my real name, and then they can see how much money, uh, you know, I've sent to the exchange and how much Bitcoin I've bought. So um, I understand, like, one of the ways I can do it is coin joining, but... Um, Coin joining is only going to give me forward privacy. Is that right? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. So by, by forward-looking privacy, uh, what we mean there is that, um, like you correctly said, you know, if you bought on a, a regulated exchange like Coinbase or Cash App, uh, they've got your personal information. And when you withdraw, they see the Bitcoin address that you withdraw to presumably like a mobile wallet or your cold storage. So um, they can, you know, Bitcoin as a, a transparent ledger it, it doesn't take a genius to work out that Gandalf bought a million sats and he sent to that wallet that wallet is controlled by Gandalf if from there you uh, take part in a coin join transaction all a coin join transaction is is a collaborative tra transaction where you come together uh, anonymously with other users and you sort of pull your uh, Bitcoin pieces of Bitcoin together um, and then you each get um, an output from that transaction where all of the outputs are absolutely identical. So the, the result is that on the output side of the transaction, everybody looks exactly the same. Yeah, I'd like to use the analogy of uh, the, the, the crowd of people in V for Vendetta or wearing the masks. Um, you can think of your uh, post-mix UTXOs as uh, analogous to that where everybody looks absolutely identical. So Coinbase could follow you across the blockchain up to that coin join transaction. After that, coin, uh, after that transaction, um, they have uh, a number of possibilities that might be you. 
uh, but they can't say with any level of certainty um, which one of those outputs is yours. So that's the general premise of uh, what what a coin join is, and you know why you might like to use it. Um, so not so, so from sorry not sorry to interrupt. So not all is lost for someone like me who has sort of you know basically onboarded myself onto Bitcoin um, in, in the least private way possible. Uh, in terms of um, being able to um, sort of prevent uh, people tracking you on train on chain after that transaction, yeah, you're correct. Then you know they, they would find it difficult. The the caveat to that is that obviously um, that that coin join transaction does not remove the KYC record that is held by uh, the regulated exchange. So that regulated exchange still knows that you who you are, where you live. Uh, how much Bitcoin you bought, when you bought it, and what address you sent it to. That's kind of the, all the information that they've got. So um, after the coin join transaction, they kind of they, they know that the chances are you've still got that Bitcoin, but they have no idea where it is, what wallet it's held in, and which address uh, it's held at. So you get uh, you do get some benefit. And then uh, I suppose if you wanted to take your privacy really, really seriously, um, the alternative option to that, uh, which is not going to be palatable for most people, and I, you know, I kind of understand why, is that instead of uh, going through CoinJoin, you can go back to the exchange, you can sell your Bitcoin, um, and then you can purchase through a more private method. Now, obviously, um, there are some things to consider when doing that. Um, obviously, depending on your jurisdiction, you expose yourself to capital gains taxes because you've bought and sold. So if you've made um, any fiat gains, you're going to be liable to pay cap- capital gains on that. Um, the other uh, thing worth considering as well is that um, once you've, let's say you've sold, you pay, you take your tax bill if you, know, if you haven't lost any money. Then you've got a big chunk of fiat that you need to deploy back into Bitcoin in a private manner. Now, doing that um, is getting much easier than it has been in in years gone by. You can use peer-to-peer exchanges like uh, BISC and HODL-HODL. If you're just doing small amounts, that's going to be pretty easy for you to do. But if, let's say, you had a good chunk of your life savings and you you just um, sold back through the exchange and you're sat on uh, $20,000, it's going to be fairly difficult for you to make a purchase of uh, $20,000 on a peer-to-peer exchange because um, the, the the liquidity is um, uh, nowhere near what it is on a centralized exchange for obvious reasons. So you're going to have to start to make smaller purchases. Um, so, and if Bitcoin does uh, what Bitcoin likes to do and has a massive price run uh, in that time period, then you're going to come out with less sats than your, uh, than when you left the um centralized exchange so there's lots to consider it kind of just depends how private and how far you want to take it um and i completely understand why the second option uh, most people don't find that very palatable but it's absolutely the most private way to do that so it kind of just depends how far you want to go yeah i mean in terms of once you've already kyc'd yourself and and you know it's 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 fair for somebody who's looking into that to assume that you still hold Bitcoin, even though they won't be able to track it after you do a coin join. That to me seems like it makes it sort of pointless to go back in. Well, I mean, because they even if you sell your Bitcoin on a KYC exchange, then somebody might assume you don't have Bitcoin anymore. But the KYC aspect of like, you know, they have your address and everything else is still there. It doesn't, doesn't go away when you sell your Bitcoin on a KYC exchange, right? 
Yeah, so you're still exposed to, let's say, Coinbase gets hacked and they uh, a list of all their customers' names and addresses gets hacked. Then um, if somebody uh, on, a say, a Darknet market that uh, gets their hands <laughs> on this... Um, they can, you know, they might want to pay you a visit because the, all they know is that you're a customer of Coinbase. They, they, they don't know necessarily how much you've hold and if you still hold it, but it might be the impetus for them to, to come and pay you a visit. The other thing to consider as well is that if, um, if you don't sell back through the KYC exchange, um, but you've done a coin join, so you've got sort of forward-looking privacy, you know, n- nobody knows where that Bitcoin is held. So they can't say for certain you've still got it. If uh, a government passes a draconian law that says um, you're now not allowed to self-custody your Bitcoin, um, we'll we'll let you uh, we'll let you uh, again. I'm using air quotes. We'll let you still have it, but you have to send it to this regulated exchange because we're having a crackdown, um, and self-custody is now outlawed in your jurisdiction. Um, it's going to be difficult for you to deny the fact that you've still got Bitcoin because there you've got no proof of where it's gone. So if the government comes to you and says, we know that you bought Bitcoin from Coinbase at this date and time, um, you know, we want you to send it to this regulated wallet that we're going to sort of control and, and be able to monitor. If you just turn around and say, oh, well, um, uh, I haven't got it anymore. I spent it or I lost it. They'll go, all right, well, have you got the proof? Uh, show me where you spent it or show me, um, you know, if you've lost it and it's part of your life savings, I presume there's going to be a... Um, there's going to be a police report for that. Surely, you know, it's, it's a significant amount of money. Obviously, if if you're lying and you have neither of those things, then you're going to have a pretty hard time to, to convince them that you don't actually own any Bitcoin. So um, I, I realize that that might sound very, very tinfoil hat to some people, but um, we, we are Bitcoiners. And as a privacy advocate, I sort of uh, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. So just, I like to kind of shine a light on, uh, some of these potential scenarios, no matter how outlandish they might seem to some people. Yeah, so this is what I've experienced, which is which is I feel like the the whilst privacy can be a spectrum, well, it is a, I guess a spectrum because you are able to have different levels of privacy. In practical terms, in a worst case scenario, there's only really full privacy that's going to protect you, like any sort of half attempt at privacy like you say you know where you've done a coin join but you don't have proof that you no longer own the bitcoin in a scenario where like somebody's coming to you know a a 6102 attack i think that's what they're called when they confiscate the bitcoin or they're saying you have to hold it in a custodial way you can't self-custody anymore like you're not going to be able to avoid that worst case scenario unless you've gone the full hog on privacy which then makes me think well then why bother even doing a slight amount of privacy if in the worst case scenario, what what is it going to protect me from basically if if I just go, you know, if I just start coin joining now? Because there is also a cost to coin joining, right? I'm paying fees or the, it costs me sats to coin join. Is that right? Yeah, there's fees involved. Um, they're, they're not massive. Um, I will give an example of the coin join implementation that, uh, called Whirlpool, which is created by the Samurai Wallet team. Um, their their fees they work on um, what's known as a sort of a flat fee system basically where there are four different liquidity pools that you can mix your Bitcoin in. Um, the smallest one is hundred thousand Sats, 
the cost to enter that pool is 5,000 sats. So it's, it's, it's almost negligible. It's, it's, you know, if you just want to try this out, you can throw in 150,000 sats, uh, they'll, you know, or, or just a little bit over a hundred thousand sats. They'll take a 5,000 sat fee. You'll pay a small amount of minor fees as you would with any Bitcoin transaction. Um, but you can absolutely get started with trying out this tech for, you know, a couple of dollars worth of Bitcoin. It's not massive. As you um, increase the pool size, so the next pool size up is a million sats. Um, the I'm going to have to remind myself now uh, what the pool size fees are. Uh, so there's a million sat pool, a 5 million sat pool, and a 50 million sat pool as well. Um, and the fees increase uh, with each one, um, but they are fixed. So if I was to enter the the uh, 5 million sat pool with um, 10 million sats, I would pay the same fee as if I was to enter the 5 million sat pool with 50 million sats. The fee does not move. Um, so you're incentivized to mix larger amounts of Bitcoin um, at once um, because you pay every time that you enter the pool, if you like. Um, and for those that are interested in kind of delving into the the um, inner workings or the, well, not the inner workings, but more of a, more of a high level um, look at Whirlpool. There's, um, there's a guide on, on uh, my website. So if you go to bitcoiner.guide slash Whirlpool, um, there's a sort of frequently asked questions there and a sort of uh, a 101 on the, the structure of it, how it works and how you can get started with it. But you can absolutely just test this stuff out with a couple of dollars worth of Bitcoin. It's not a massive amount just to test it. Cool. So, so let's say I was to do, um, so I'm, I'm personally, I'm definitely going to do some coin joining, uh, if not for anything else, just the fact that I like playing around and learning new stuff about Bitcoin, but what, so what would be the benefit for me? Um, you know, having the KYC Bitcoin, like what scenario am I evading by now doing a coin join? Could somebody it like, if somebody found out an address that I have Bitcoin in, um, like just a regular person, you know, let's say I send someone some on-chain um, an on-chain transaction, would they be able to sort of, if I haven't coin joined, track back the sats and see what other wallets has been in and potentially like figure out how many, how many Bitcoins I have or how many sats I, I hold? Yeah. So let's, let's use uh, a scenario where you are, um, you're sending me uh, a donation. Um, you do that um, from, uh, from your cold storage wallet. And let's say you use, um, you've got a fairly large UTXO or a, a piece of Bitcoin that you use to make that spend. Let's say, um, let's say it's a 20 million sat UTXO and you set, you send me, you know, uh, 20,000 sats just to say, you know, thanks for your help with the website. Um, here's a little tip. So obviously I see that transaction land in my wallet. Um, I can go onto a public block explorer or I can look at my own and say, Hey, oh, um, Gandalf paid me, uh, you know, he kindly tipped me 20,000 sats, but I can see that the UTXO that he paid me from is quite a large UTXO. So I know that he's got uh, the best part of 20 million sats in his wallet. So number one, I've learned that you have uh, a significant amount of Bitcoin in your wallet. That might make me um, somewhat interested in trying to find out where you live. Um, so from, from there, so I, I know that little bit of information about you. Let's say now you go onto a, a known darknet market and you want to buy some weed because you, you like to chill out on a Friday night. If that, um, the address that, and you buy with, with, with Bitcoin and you pay with the same piece of Bitcoin, the change from the donation that you made to me. Um, 
I could obviously, it's trivial for me to see after you've paid me where that Bitcoin goes next on the blockchain. And if I can work out that, well, that address has been used loads. I know that that's a darknet market address. I know then that you're, um, you like to dabble in, in some, uh, in some herb on a Friday night. Obviously, um, that might not be an issue for, for me to know that about you, but let's say, let's switch me out for your employer or your nan. Um, do you see where, where it can kind of go in terms of you making an honest donation to me from then I can see, you know, I've got an idea of how much Bitcoin you've got and I can see where you're spending from then onwards. Absolutely. So let's say, let's say after you donate to me, you then go into a coin join before you go to the darknet market to buy your weed. Um, I'm going to be able to, I'm going to see that change output go back to your wallet after you made the donation. Then I'm going to see that you've gone into a coin join. After that, I haven't got a clue. You know, you could be any one of five people um, that are on the output side of that transaction. And if you mix more than once, I'm screwed. You know, you could be 25 people now, or if you remix a couple of times, you could be a hundred people. Do you see how it, it kind of grows exponentially and you just kind of um, cover your tracks essentially so that after that donation, I haven't got a clue where you've gone after that with that piece of Bitcoin. Yeah, so th that's really interesting to hear all of that because so it sounds like understanding UTXOs is quite an important part of of using Bitcoin privately. Would I be correct in, in that statement? Yes, absolutely. I'll use um, another analogy that might be a bit closer to home to people because probably people listening to this going, well, you know, I don't buy stuff off the dark net, so why do I need to worry? Let's say you get paid in Bitcoin and your salary is £2,000 a month. Your uh, employer sends you your, your wages in Bitcoin at the end of the month. That would be in, in, you know, that would land in your wallet as a single piece of Bitcoin. Again, they know which piece of Bitcoin they've paid you. So anytime you, you know, if you go and do your food shop, if you go and do, uh, you buy your girlfriend something nice or you uh, go to a restaurant, they can see all of those spends. So they can essentially start to build up a picture of, you know, where you're spending your your wages, basically. So um, the that's not something that I aspire for my employers, good as they are. I don't really want um, the CEO of my company to know where I spend my wages. Um, you know, that's not the norm now in the, in the legacy system. So why should it be the norm in, in a Bitcoin world? Um, so this is where CoinJoin enables you to um, just have some kind of freshly minted Bitcoin, if you like, that's got no uh, traceable history that you can spend where you see fit. Because let's say you're, you know, you go to a, a specific retailer that your employer um, doesn't agree with and doesn't like you spending at, you know, that th they could see that on chain and they could uh, start asking questions of you. And, you know, do you really want your employer dictating uh, where you can and cannot spend uh spend your wages, you know, that should be up to you and it should be private. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I learned about how traceable and how seemingly transparent Bitcoin is by listening to your episode of Citadel Dispatch, the most recent one um, with Matt Adele. But so it, it just got me thinking to this, like at the beginning, Bitcoin had this reputation for being an anonymous digital currency, which, you know, you could use to pay for like weird shit on the dark web and you know couldn't be traced back to you so how have we ended up in a situation where it now seems that bitcoin is almost less you know something that was called like an anonymous private digital currency that you can do crazy shit with uh you know illegal stuff how have we ended up in a place where like now 
it seems like anyone with a little bit of knowledge of how to use a block explorer and un- a little bit of understanding of how Bitcoin works can figure out like, you know, where you spend your money and how much you have. Like, how have we gone from that to this? Well, two things. Uh, number one, uh, the normalization and the absolute creep of uh, K- uh, KYC, basically. It's the default now for people to sign up to a KYC exchange, buy some Bitcoin and ta- have that Bitcoin tagged to their name. That is the default way that people come into the space. And it's the way I came into the space. You know, I, I bought my first sats on, on uh, Coinbase. So that coupled with, you know, if you, let's say 95 people, percent of people entering the space are tagging their Bitcoin to their personal identity. All of these exchanges share information. They're all, uh, most of them are in bed with law enforcement, unfortunately. So um, that that's the first, you know, uh, sort of uh, shot in the kneecap of Bitcoin, unfortunately, in terms of privacy. And I guess the other thing as well is the proliferation of um, chain analysis firms, um, you know, there's, there's big money in this in terms of any of these regulated exchanges want to be seen to be doing all they can to, to stop, uh, quote unquote, you know, money laundering, terrorism, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they're all, they all pair up with, with, uh, chain analysis firms who've built, you know, quite, um, quite detailed uh, tracking tools so that they can um, put probability on, you know, any, any transaction on the blockchain, they can put a probability of, you know, did Bitcoin change hands, did Bitcoin change hands here or did it, um, you know, do we um, think that this is just like kind of like a self-transfer, you know, is Gandalf uh, withdrawing from Coinbase and he's uh, sent to his cold storage wallet. They use kind of uh, what's known as heuristics where they, they sort of look at different traits of the transaction to try and glean what's actually gone on because, the, the underlying principle of the blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain, hasn't changed. You know, it's just um, uh, address A sends to address B, that there is no name at that level. Um, the name is at step one where people are entering the space, unfortunately, which is um, uh, contributed to the, the somewhat uh, surveillance um, ability of, of the network. So uh, tools like CoinJoin and being able to procure your Bitcoin through sources where you don't have to um, provide any personal information like earning or peer-to-peer exchanges or mining um, are really, really important. And it's why people, you know, privacy advocates like myself and loads of the other people that sort of uh, swim in my circles try to shout as loud as they can about. Yeah, you don't. You, I, I think most people don't realize this, so it's an important um, thing to highlight just how how easy it is to to for for someone to track you and find out a lot of information about you um, if you're not careful and not aware of of this sort of thing. Um, so so for example, if somebody was because so, I I'm familiar with some of the um, I recently started like looking at multisig solutions and I'm familiar with a, a few of the companies that do multisig like Casa or Unchained Capital. Um, and I know you can also set up your own, but from what I understand, like one of the main differences between an unchained capital and a CASA is that I think I understand CASA's not, doesn't KYC you, whereas unchained capital does. So if you had, for example, uh, your, you know, your cold storage Bitcoin on a multi-sig vault with unchained capital, uh, and you were coin joining and sending it back to that, um, to that vault, you would be it, it would be pointless to coin join because you're sending it back to a KYC address. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not sure on the intricacies of the levels of uh, information that you have to provide. I know you're absolutely right with Unchained Capital, where they they 
KYCU at the door. I think CASA do as well, but I think they do provide an option where you can do where you can sign up to their base level tier uh, pseudonymously with just an email, I believe, but I haven't tried it. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, if if you um, even if let's say you're mining sats and you want to put it in, in an unchained capsule vault, which is, you know, don't get me wrong, the, these solutions uh, fill a gap in the market in terms of being able to people to secure their Bitcoin and, and remove, um, you know, a single point of failure. So that they're a great option for that. But if you're, let's say you're mining or you're buying from an OKYC exchange and sending it into that wallet, then you're kind of wasting your time from a privacy perspective because unchained capsule, as great as they are, they're a regulated entity that, you know, could be, subpoenaed by a government to provide a list of um, a list of their customers in the event, you know, of the doomsday scenarios that we talked about before that, you know, self-custody is, is banned and outlawed or um, we, you know, God forbid, have a 6102 style event or something like that. These sorts of regulated exchanges or regulated um, collaborative custodians are going to be the first on the list that the government goes to to say, you've got a nice big fat list of Bitcoiners. Can I see it, please? Yeah, yeah, that, that's so. I, my introduction to uh, multisig was through exploring options with um, these like collaborative custodians, and they do have their benefits as well. Like, you know, if something was to happen to you and your family has no idea how to use Bitcoin, uh, there's someone there to guide you as opposed to if you set something up yourself. But I think. Yeah, if it, it sounds like if you really want to be or increase your your privacy, you have to stop using any sort of custodial service, even if it's like a collaborative multi-sig custodian, you have to learn how to set up your own, uh, stop leaving coins on exchange or sending them to addresses where like your identity is tied to. And I, I think I should highlight that none of this is a is about like evading taxes or avoiding, uh, you know, breaking the law. I think it's just like, we all have a right to 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 not have to like have our entire you know all our personal information on display for anyone to see for whatever reason uh that they, they think at the time i think you know uh we should all be expected to follow the law pay our taxes you know you can choose where you where you live mostly so if you don't like it you should go somewhere else um but it's not about yeah it's not about evading uh you know tax avoidance or doing anything illegal it's just like basic privacy and we do know like governments aren't always acting in our best interests so um it's good to have a buffer to where like if a government um goes a bit rogue uh that you're not like the lowest hanging fruit in terms of them doing something doing something crazy yeah definitely you know uh central bank digital currencies are looming uh it looks like they're they are going to come in eventually. Um, the the uh, consequences of which um, are probably you know not understood by the the mass of the population. But essentially, they're going to provide absolute surveillance um, to the to central banks, where they can um, control uh, how much money you have, uh, where you spend it. Um, you know, we've even seen in China where they're putting expiry uh, dates on money as well. Yeah. So they can enforce when you spend it as well. So it, it's um, really quite square, really quite scary. Um, so I think uh, Bitcoin, if used properly, provides a way, a peaceful way that you could opt out of a system like that. Like, you, you know, you're absolutely right. I'm not advocating for people to um, 
to break any laws. You know, you're free to do so if you want. Um, but this is about just having the um, the opportunity to opt out and being having private Bitcoin and using it privately. In my opinion, is the best way to be able to opt out. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Um, okay, getting into into uh, storing Bitcoin uh, and wallets. So uh, I want to set up a multi-sig um, and I have actually enjoy trying all wallets. So I've tried like a Trezor, a cold card, a Ledger, uh, and I'm just going to get into um, building my own seed signer and a Spectre DIY. Um, and I'd like to also check out um, the foundation devices uh, passport. Um, so are you able to to talk me through, you know, the features of the foundation devices passport and how it's different to some of the wallets I've already tried, like the cold card, the, the ledger and the Trezor? Yeah. So, um, uh, passport, um, uh, again, full disclosure for anybody who skipped ahead is a company that I work for. So I'm just going to state my, my clear and obvious biases first. Um, but passport is a Bitcoin only hardware wallet. Um, that has 100% air-gapped operation. So what we mean by that is that this is a device that physically cannot be connected um, by a cable to to your computer. So why might that be a good thing? Um, so most people, unfortunately, are not great at securing their computers, and most uh, most people's computers probably are infected with some form of uh, virus or malware. So it's probably a good idea not to uh, connect the device that your uh, controls the, the keys to your um, your uh, life savings um, to that that malware infested device. So we've created a, in my opinion, a really beautiful device that enables you to manage, um, store, well, generate and store your Bitcoin private keys uh, in an offline manner. Um, and we also enable you the uh, the opportunity to interact with pretty much any wallet software that's on the market, which we can come onto in a sec, um, where you can interact uh, without needing to physically connect it to um, to your computer. You can interact with your phone as well. Uh, we, we do that via the use of QR codes. So when you want to sort of uh, sign a transaction, um, the, the wallet software that you choose, um, again, we're, we're compatible with uh, pretty much everything out, out there on the market. Um, you can do so by just scanning QR codes back and forth. So rather than having to, to dig out your USB cable to plug your um, your hardware wallet into your computer, or rather than having to do what I like to call the the SD card shuffle, which is a feature that we do actually offer just as a as an option for those people that want to use that, um, we offer the probably the simplest transaction signing uh, process possible for for most for the hardware wallets that are on the market today. Um, and we've packaged all that in a, in a in an interface and in a, a physical uh, body that um, is what we like to think is really approachable and very very easy to use. So you're not going to have to uh, read the read the manual from cover to cover to use this device. We 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 pride ourselves on making um, being able to. Uh, interact with your Bitcoin uh, privately, sovereignly, um, and in an air gap fashion, in the easiest possible way. Um, you know, we we do have significant um, and very detailed documentation, but we, like I say, we pride ourselves on uh, the fact that ninety percent of our users don't need to use it because we we create the product in such a way that it's very intuitive um, and enables people to to uh, keep their cold storage nice and safe and easy to interact with. Yeah, it was, a, it was actually 
the looking at the passport that made me learn that you didn't have to plug a hardware wallet into a into a computer. I had a cold card already, but I didn't, and I I thought that was like sort of it's marketed as air gapped, but I understand obviously by transferring an SD card um, over to from the device to the computer, you're sort of still like mixing the two. Um, in a way. So I thought it was awesome to to see that you could interact just via QR code um, with with the passport. Uh, and I also love the fact that it, it it's kind of stealthy. You wouldn't, like if you saw a Trezor or a Ledger, uh, Trezor is probably the, the least conspicuous one, I guess, if that's the right word. Uh, but like, it doesn't look like a USB stick. It doesn't look like anything else. Like, it's like a weird thing. A ledger looks a bit like a USB stick, so it could pass for just like a USB stick. But the the passport is like a looks like a mobile phone sort of thing. Yeah, it's um, a lot of people uh, say that it's quite analogous to the old um, Nokia uh, rectangular shaped phones. It's got that sort of shape and feel to it, um, <clears throat> so it will look somewhat familiar to, to most people. Um, but uh, just to, just on your point about the SD card, um, we that is a feature that we offer similar to the cold card. And I, I think that does maintain the air gap um, okay. be, because um, you know it's not physically connected. Yes, you're putting the SD card from the hardware wallet device into the laptop, but um, you know you're in control of what files you're putting onto that SD card, and you can kind of um, you can audit that at any time. You know you. you if there was anything, you know, let's say your computer had some really weird bug where it tried to transfer a, a, a malicious file onto there, you'd see that instantly. So it's um, it provides an easy way to, to audit it. But yeah, absolutely, the the best user experience uh, for us is is QR codes. It's you can sign a transaction in seconds. Um, the great thing about us as well is that you don't even need a laptop to to inter or a computer to um, interact with with your passport as well. Um, we are um, compatible with two uh, different mobile wallets that um, allow us to, you know, you can manage your passport with Blue Wallet on your phone um, and also Simple Bitcoin Wallet, which is a fairly new uh, mobile wallet on the market. They just inter- integrated the um, compatibility with Passport as well. So you can have that great QR code signing experience without the need to dig out your laptop or, um, you know, so it's, again, we, we were talking before about user experience. Um, we're, we're increasingly moving into um, a mobile first world. And I think it's really important that we um, are interoperable with uh, as many mobile wallets as we can. Um, so that user experience, um, I'd be comfortable that even my mother could probably uh, get, a, get a head around how to, how to operate that. Uh, it's really quite intuitive and, and uh, somewhat unique as well. Okay, awesome. So to be clear, then I think I misconstrued the the whole the the SD card thing maybe not being as as uh, as safe in terms of air gapping as a QR code, but really the the main difference, assuming you don't and you know it put an infected file in the SD card without realizing, which would be a yeah highly unlikely event. Uh, that it's just a user experience thing. Like you know you don't have to take the SD card out and put it in a computer and put it back. You just um, you can just scan a QR code and that takes a couple of seconds. So that's that's sort of a exactly. UX upgrade rather than a security thing. Okay, awesome. And then, so for someone like me who's willing to dig deep and learn anything, um, uh, and let's say, you know, you're storing, let's say you're somebody like a, a super hardcore Bitcoin maximalist, you're Bitcoin only, you're save, your entire life savings is in Bitcoin. 
what would be your recommended way to store it? Would it be single sig? Would it be single sig with a passphrase? Would it be multi-sig? Um, what would you do? And also, uh, like if you can um, share, like, you know, if it's a multi-sig, how many would you do? Like two of three or three of five or six? And what devices you might recommend? Is it better to mix devices or is it better to have, you know, three or five passports? So I... Uh, always advise people to keep it as simple as they can for as long as they can. Um, the sort of bare minimum uh, sovereign uh, sort of key storage that I recommend would be single sig with a passphrase. I think that approach is um, is more than secure enough for ninety percent of people. You know, the, the the your average Joe isn't storing hundreds of thousands of dollars here. That you know that they're putting away a couple hundred dollars each month. Um, so that sort of approach is is going to be manageable. It's going to be approachable, um, and they're not going to have um, too many things that need to back up or um, or to to worry about if in an inheritance scenario where you know they are the bitcoiner and nobody else in the family understands what's going on. You know, if you've got a really elaborate security setup, then the chances are that if you disappear tomorrow, then so is your bitcoin. It's going to. It's not. Nobody's going to be able to recover it unless you've got those steps in place to and somebody that knows what to do and where to find all your stuff. So single sig plus passphrase is a really great approach and it's very versatile. You know, you can have your hardware wallet in a safe at home, have your seed words um, stored somewhere secure, uh, close to home, if not at home. And then you can keep the passphrase um, somewhere separate in a, again, in a, in a robust method, hopefully stamped into some metal um, offsite, maybe at a family's family member's house that, you know, you don't need, the utmost trust in them because if they figure out what this passphrase is, they still can't do anything with just that. They still need your seed words and equally flip it on its head. If somebody was to, to break into your house, um, if they get just the seed words, they still, they can just access that empty wallet. Um, they still need the passphrase, which might be at your, your, uh, your aunt's house maybe. So it provides uh, a good level of, um, protection for most of the common sort of uh, attack vectors. And it's, I say, felt relatively simple to set up. And most of the decent hardware wallets also all support um, a passphrase as well. Um, if you wanted to take it a little bit further, and let's say you're slightly more well-off and you wanted to, you know, you, you're, you're getting into the realms of storing um, a, a bit of wealth that you're not comfortable keeping on a single device, let's say, um, then multi-sig, DIY multi-sig uh, or sovereign multi-sig, if you like, is is a great approach that is getting um, is getting easier with tools like Sparrow and Spectre that are coming out that are making the coordination of these types of wallets much easier and also the backup as well. So my personal recommendation there would be, again, trying to keep it as simple as possible, would be a two of three setup. So where you use three hardware devices to set up um a, a, a multi-sig wallet where you need uh, any two of those devices to sign off on any spends. So the main attack vector here that that sort of setup protects against <clears throat> is um, if somebody was to break into your house um, and uh, hold you at gunpoint, then just having one of those keys in your house isn't enough to be able to create a transaction. So instead of just breaking into your house and being able to get away with some of your Bitcoin, now they need to break into your house, get you to get you to, get you to cough up where one of your devices is. They then need to march you to wherever the second location is 
um, to get to the second device to create any, you know, a valid spend. So most attackers uh, are going to go for the low hanging fruit. And as soon as they understand that this is, you know, you don't physically have the means to spend from that wallet just in your house, that hopefully they're, they're going to give up on that. And so it, it's that next level, that next step up in terms of protection. Yeah. Now it does, it does come with uh, some caveats. Um, you know, you've got, you've now got um, three devices and three seeds for those devices that you've got to secure. So have you got three secure locations to keep those in? Most people probably not. Um, some people might, you know, um, do you use a bank? Do you use your cousin's house? Do you use your father-in-law's house? You know, you've got to consider carefully where you keep all these devices. Um, if you keep them too far apart, that's going to be really secure because they're, they're, they're nowhere near each other. But if you want to make a spend once a week, that's going to be a massive pain in the ass for you to go round to two of those locations to get the sign-in devices um, so that you can create that, that, uh, that transaction. Um, so there's, there's a balance to be had. And again, it's a very personal one. So, you know, it's not for me to tell um, anybody listening to this where they should keep those, those devices because it's very personal and everybody's got different um, options available to them, but it's something worth considering. The, the final consideration is, um, again, in, is inheritance. You might be a, a really interested Bitcoiner that's keen on learning and you set up a really secure two or three multi-sig. You've got, them, you've got those keys distributed. Then you're walking to the shop tonight, you get hit by a bus um, and your wife and kids, are, you know, you've left them a fortune. Are they going to know, number one, where those keys are? Number two, what they need to do with them? Number three, the password to your laptop to be able to get into the wallet software? Um, the likelihood is for most people, no, probably not. So uh, the easy uh, or the, the sort of de facto answer to that is, well, I'll just leave them some instructions. But then those instructions become a threat vector in themselves, in themselves, because if somebody finds those instructions, that's kind of a treasure map to to all your keys and to where your backups are. So it's that there isn't um, a, an easy answer or a, a sort of de facto recommendation for everybody. There's a lot of um, things to weigh up, uh, caveats to think about, and trade offs to consider before you make this. Uh, quite a big decision really, um, especially when it comes back to the inheritance piece that I've just run through. So my my advice would be keep it simple for as long as you can. Um, and when you make that shift up to multi-sig, tread very, very carefully, do lots and lots of practice um, and make sure that you think about the inheritance side of things because that's often uh, overlooked in my uh, experience. Yeah, that's the, the, um, the keep it simple for as long as possible, I think is great general advice. Um, and then, as you said, it becomes difficult to give a specific, uh, you know, one size fits all best solution because it really can depend on the user themselves. Um, I think if you go too advanced for your own ability, you become a uh, a vulnerability to your security setup because uh, user error is is a is a factor. There's no. I guess there's no solution that's immune to you messing something up and the more complicated you go um, without the required knowledge and understanding, the more likely it is that you will be the one that's that's uh, messing it up and and potentially ending up with like you losing your coins. And then, yeah, of course, um, yeah. with with inheritance. More, more people, sorry, go on. No, 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 you go ahead. I was just going to say, more, far more people will screw themselves out of their own Bitcoin or lose their own Bitcoin than will get hacked from any of the, or, or have it stolen through the, 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 
theoretical uh, attack vectors that I've just run through, uh, which is why, again, it comes back to just keeping it simple because uh, you, you're far more likely to lose it um, or, or screw something up when you're coordinating a, a multi-sig setup um, than you are to be somebody to hit you over the head with a hammer and say, give me all your Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then in terms of somebody, so th- this is something I thought about a lot for myself. And um, on uh, so I've, I've been scared of the single sig plus passphrase because I've read so many horror stories of people forgetting their passphrase, but that's obviously like a backup issue. So um, it would lead me right. to think that if you can sort of hold two copies of your seed and two copies of your passphrase, you maybe avoid the whole forgetting the the passphrase. Um, but then you're looking at four different locations in terms of like where you store those backups because you obviously don't want to store a passphrase and a seed together because it doesn't eliminate the single point of failure in terms of somebody being able to like $5 wrench attack you if those are both in the same location and they can easily gain access to them. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if you've got a single sig plus a passphrase, um, you need both of those together to cre- recreate the wallet. So keeping them together in, in the form of metal seed backups um, is absolutely pointless because the whole point is that the passphrase is that that final layer of protection that if your seed is compromised, they still get an empty wallet, they still need your passphrase. So absolutely keep them separate. Um, just to circle back with the, the backup option, um, another great option, which is uh, something that we at Passport uh, Foundation, that the Passport device offers is encrypted uh, SD card backups. Now, while these shouldn't be, uh, in my opinion, used on their own, um, you should still stamp, stamp your seed with into metal. But what you can also do is create an encrypted backup on a tiny little micro SD card um, that is a backup of your uh, private key that you can store um, multiple copies of uh, where, you know, wherever you wanted, really. You, you keep them at, at family's houses. You could give a little SD card to your mum and just say, you know, can you keep this for me? Um, if she was to look at that, the contents of that SD card, it's encrypted with a password. So while the, the password to sort of uh, decrypt this micro SD card is something else that you need to remember, um, it's, uh, well, on Passport, it's six words long. You can create multiple backups with that same password. So by remembering... Uh, an additional six words to decrypt this um, uh, this micro SD card, or or again stamping them into metal and keeping them separately. You can create multiple SD card backups, so you could have one at your mum's house, one at your sister's house, where they they can't break into that. The encryption is very very strong, but it's just an extra layer of protection that you know if you were to lose your seed backup, then you've got your uh, encrypted backups in two different locations where you could just draw on that instead to recover your wallet as well. So another great option that's much, much easier to store, you know, because if, if somebody sees um, a Metal C backup, uh, it's essentially in clear text. So th- it doesn't take a genius, you know, as, as Bitcoin continues to grow in adoption, what that's going to, what that sort of piece of metal is, you know, it's a Bitcoin backup that's going to become common knowledge in the not too distant future. Whereas, a micro SD card could be anything. It could be could have photos on it. It could have, uh, you know, videos or files or anything on it. So if somebody was to find it and put it into the computer, they, they'd have to break the encryption, uh, which, you know, to this day, nobody's um, been able to do. So another great option worth considering for the hardware wallets that offer that sort of thing. Awesome. That's, that's something I didn't know. So that's excellent to know. And as you said, like an SD card is very unsuspecting, whereas, uh, you know, a metal plate with 12 or 24 words stamped into it 
like what else could that be really um so great advice uh cool let's um just as we finish up uh, i want to just quickly get your um get your thoughts on nodes so why should somebody run their own node as opposed to trust someone else's node um and uh, maybe go maybe, maybe tell us what node implementations you use um in case somebody wants to get started with with running a node yeah, so I'll try and keep it fairly brief. Um, as as Bitcoiners, we we're, we're here to remove uh, trusted third parties. So we buy Bitcoin because we don't trust central banks to not inflate our savings away. Great. So to to carry on down that um, that same thought process, um, it, whenever you um, take part in a transaction on the Bitcoin network, you are doing so through a node. Now, if you don't have your own node, you're doing that through somebody else's node. Uh, that is a mantra that's been said time and time again. So to break that down, essentially, if you just have a phone wallet and you're just starting out in the space, you you are connecting to somebody else's node. Nine times out of 10, it, it will be the node that is provided by the wallet provider. So let's use Blue Wallet as an example. Blue Wallet will run their own node. If you just download the app and you receive some Bitcoin, you're doing that through their own node. What their node is doing is telling your wallet the current state of the wallet, you know, how much... Um, how much Bitcoin is is in that? Um, so there's a certain level of trust there that you're trusting the the blue the node that is provided by Blue Wallet to tell you the correct balance uh, of your Bitcoin. By running your own node, you remove that trust within Blue Wallet. If you were to connect your Blue Wallet to your node, um, essentially you are um, trusting your own hardware and software. Um, to tell you the state of your wallet um, and to be able to broadcast transactions out to the state of the network. So at a very, very high level, um, it's just about removing uh, trusted third parties so that you can be that uh, you can take that next step in terms of um, sovereignty. Uh, so there's many ways that you can run a node. They range from as simple as uh, downloading uh, Bitcoin Core or Spectre Desktop onto your computer, clicking a few buttons, and it will all do it for you. You can get started in literally five minutes. Um, then you can move on, uh, you know, if you want some more functionality, but you don't want to increase the complexity. Um, there are various uh, what are colloquially called uh, plug-and-play nodes where um one of the node providers will send you some pre-built hardware uh, that you know is a similar sort of size to um, to your internet router. Generally, uh, you can plug that into your internet router, plug into some power, um, and that will chug away and and sort of uh, act as your own node. Um, or the final option is that you can uh, build one yourself on. Um, some hardware that you bought and then you can install the software on it, which sounds really, really technical, but these no projects, which I'll come on to in a sec, um, have made uh, the user experience really, really easy for people, even non-technical people, to be able to build this themselves using, generally they're run on uh, what are known as single board computers, such as a Raspberry Pi. So you buy the hardware from Amazon, um, costs you like $150, $200, get yourself a hard um a hard drive, um, put it all together in, in a couple of minutes, literally. Download your chosen software, um, and that will kind of chug away in the corner of your bedroom or your lounge, um, and you can connect uh, any number of wallets to that to be able to um, interact with the Bitcoin network uh, in a more sovereign manner so that you don't need to trust anybody else to tell you uh, the current state of all of your wallets. 
Um, in terms of no projects that um, I use, um, I actually run three nodes at the moment, um, which is absolutely is is not required. So anybody listening to this, don't think that you need to run three nodes. Um, I just have a, a habit of enjoying tinkering, much like yourself, Gandalf, and I just like to see what all of the different projects have to offer. Um, so I we talked about CoinJoin earlier, and I have a, a dedicated node called a Roni Dojo. Um, which you can learn more about at ronindojo.io. That's kind of like a a very samurai-focused, privacy-focused node. Um, So I run one of those. I also run a uh, Raspberry Blitz, which is uh, somewhat more of a Lightning Network-focused node for when I'm tinkering with Lightning, um, that side of things. And more recently, literally in the last uh, couple of weeks, and I've been building my own sort of DIY node on some more premium hardware, um, which, again, it is a fair bit more technical. I've done it as a bit of a learning experience. I've been following a great guide from Catan, from uh, Ministry of Nodes, who everybody should uh, go and check out as well. Um, so, yeah, in terms of the the common ones, uh, Ronin Dojo and Raspberry Blitz are my favourites, um, not only because of the, the, the services that they offer, um, but because they are both truly... Um, free and open source uh, projects as well. So very much aligned with my personal ethos and uh, of course the, the Bitcoin ideology of, of, of being free and open source. Awesome. Um, so I, it's good to hear that you're running a, a running dojo and a raspy blitz. I've got all of the hardware to build one of each of those. So those are, are going to be the, uh, the two nodes that I'm going to run as well. Cause I want to play around with lightning um, and I definitely also want to do some coin joining and, and get familiar with that. So it's nice to hear that someone like yourself is is also uh, running those two node implementations. Um, and yeah, keep us posted on on how it goes with this uh, this other third premium node. I suspect I will eventually also run another node because I'll want to try maybe. Uh, I've heard so much about Umbral and how smooth of a user experience it is, but I know there's also issues with it not quite being open source there's some controversy that i don't quite understand there but i know that there yeah that 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 there's something there so yeah uh don't don't get me wrong umbrella offer a great product um and in terms of like a really polished user interface um uh, they they've they've done a very very good job at that um the the they do um suffer from there's a a lot of features packaged in with it um and my personal opinion my non-technical opinion is that I get the impression that because there's so much packed into it, sometimes um, if you're running a lot of things on on a really low-powered uh, piece of kit like a Raspberry Pi, it, it has its limits. Um, and I think if you're if you switch everything on, you're probably going to run into to issues, um, which is why I like to um, use the more focused products where you know Raspberry Blitz is really really good at Lightning. Um, so I just use it for that. And Rony Doge is really, really good at Samurai Wallet and CoinJoin. Um, again, not a requirement. Don't feel like you need to run multiple. It's just because I'm sort of f- further down that rabbit hole that I want to sort of maintain a more focused approach, I guess. Awesome. Well, um, I I think we'll wrap it up there because I know you have a hard stop at 11. And um, I just want to say I really, really appreciate the time. I Hopefully all the uh, everyone listening has learned a lot. You're a... You're a endless endless uh book full of of bitcoin privacy and technology and there's so much more stuff that we um that that we can cover i mean you can go down several rabbit holes on each of the topics we covered but i I encourage everyone to go and check out um 
on your on Bitcoiner guide, there is a page where you have listed all the other podcasts you've been on. So I would encourage for anyone who wants, you know, who got a taste and wants to go dive deeper down the rabbit hole, uh, just go listen to all the podcasts uh, with um, Bitcoin Q and A on them. And uh, I encourage everyone to also go check out check you out on Twitter and follow you. Your handle is at Bitcoin Q underscore A. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. And uh, thank you for the reminder on the on the podcast list as well. I need to update that today. So uh, thank you for the nudge. <laughs> yeah. That uh, yeah. You've you featured on some awesome podcasts. So and there's and there, there's just there's a lot more that people can learn. So this is just a yeah brief every brief introduction. And um, I encourage everyone to dive deeper and get into the nitty gritty details by listening to other stuff. But mate, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Take care, man. Speak soon.